Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Public Policy. I am Chevy Troy, your host, and today we're going to be discussing a book called The Fight of Our Lives, Knowing the Enemy, Speaking the Truth, and Choosing to Win the War Against Radical Islam. It is by William Bennett and Seth Liebson. As always, every week with New Books in Public Policy, we interview an author about books of public policy interest. And this book came to me on a Friday. I was not anticipating it. I didn't even know it was coming out even though, as you'll hear, I do know the co-authors. And I sat down and I read it in pretty much one and a half sittings, found it a fascinating read. And I have little markers that I use to mark up books when I'm reading them, and I used at least 15 or 20 in this relatively short book. And I also looked very carefully at the end notes at the bottom of the page, and there were all sorts of little interesting bits of information that I had not heard before. So I had an interesting time, a fun time reading this book, and I hope you enjoy the interview that I'm about to have with the co-author, Seth Leibson, on New Books in Public Policy. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Seth. So Thanks, glad you could join us. Thanks, Peppy. Really appreciate it. I must say, on Friday, when I opened up my mail, I was surprised to get this book, The Fight of Our Lives, by William J. Bennett and Seth Leibson. We're here, obviously, with one of the co-authors, Seth Leibson. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the book and how you came to write it. But before, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your um, famous co-author? Sure. Thank you very much, Teddy. I'll start with the co-author, lead author, William Bennett. A lot of uh, the audience will know him from his nationally syndicated radio show, Bill Bennett's Morning in America. He has been a um, leader in uh, communications and uh, cultural issues for decades. He served as Ronald Reagan's Secretary of Education and Chairman for the National Endowment for the Humanities. He also was the nation's first drug czar under President George H.W. Bush. And he has uh, authored well over 20 books at this point. I have been working with him for, I suppose, the past dozen or so years. And I uh, worked with him and Jack Kemp and Jean Kirkpatrick at their think tank, Empower America, where we were on 9-11, never forget that morning. Um, we were Our offices are across from the White House, and we were evacuated by the Secret Service once the, uh, once the attacks had taken place. Wow, I didn't realize then, the Secret Service did evacuations beyond the White House grounds. Yeah, they did, and uh, whether they wanted to clear area or what the reason was, I don't know, but they, <laughs> they got us out of there. And um, the next day, September 12, 2001, about four of us showed up for work. Um, one of them was Bill Bennett. One of them was myself. One of them was Jack Kemp. And we had another staffer with us. And we sat around uh, the table discussing what had happened the day before and what our response should be. We got Gene Kirkpatrick on the phone and we started talking. One of the first things we decided to do was start an organization called Americans for Victory Over Terrorism because it was Bill's and my idea that this would be a long war, a different kind of war, 
and over the years that it would take to wage it, public opinion would fail, would falter, and public opinion would be really important, extremely important in this war, because it was not only going to be a, um, a kinetic war with the military, it was going to be a war of ideas, and uh, as you know, as Lincoln says, with public opinion, almost anything is possible. Without it, nothing is. We held a press conference, and uh, I remember the reporters at the time, major article in the USA Today said we were going after after phantom enemies. There would be uh, very little opposition in public opinion to, the, to, to waging this war we would need to wage. And, uh, well, I think we were right, and the mainstream media was wrong. Wouldn't be the first time, right? Much. It wouldn't be the first time. You asked for a little bit of my biography. Certainly, I had um, at the time, as I said, I had worked at uh, been working at Empower America. I was the vice president there for policy, and for several years, had worked with him, Bill Bennett, and Jack Kemp as their chiefs of uh, as their chief of staff. And uh, prior to that, I was uh, practicing attorney, and uh, since then, I've been um, involved in radio and all manner of public policy and writing. You know, it's interesting in what you said in your description of the book or how you came to write it or, or came to create this organization that you said we knew public opinion would falter. You didn't say wax and wane. You didn't say there'd be up and down periods. You just said falter. I mean, straight to the failure. Is that, a, is that how you guys conceived it? We thought it would happen uh, that way. We didn't think it would wax and wane. Um, you know, public opinion is an interesting thing. And what we figured was one of the great things about America, as we like to say, is Americans like to move on and forget. One of the terrible things about America is they like to move on and forget. After a tragedy, after a slaughter like 9-11, public opinion was indeed very high. The president had huge support. Uh, support for waging a long and hard and difficult war was very high. But we just knew it wouldn't last. We had looked at the way other wars had gone. We had looked at public opinion at wars previous. And um, the American, uh, American support for war tends to be quite short. We knew this war would be different. It was going to be different in the way it was going to be waged. It was going to be different in the way it was going to be concluded. And uh, we talked to a lot of experts about this and people who would join our efforts. Charles Krauthammer was one of them. Jim Woolsey was another syndicated columnist, former director of the CIA, Krauthammer and Woolsey. And what we did was we went to college campuses, and uh, we went to a bunch of them, from Columbia to Harvard to UCLA, other colleges, George Washington. And what we noticed was a lot of the students, a lot of the students were supportive of this effort, but the faculty was not. And the faculty had grave doubts, and we figured um, as time went on, what was uh, high opinion, high cultured opinion, what uh, people think of uh, today as uh, academic elite, that would seep down. And I think it did. And uh, it's awfully hard. It's awfully hard to, uh, to keep public opinion high when you have the mainstream media, academic elite, and as it turned out, almost the entirety of one major political party turning against you. Very hard to wage a war in those, in those uh, conditions and uh, very hard to regain the footing needed to wage a war, but regain the footing is what we need to do, and that's why we wrote this book. 
You know, it's interesting you talk about academic elites and, and their perspective. On one part in the book, I believe on page 21, and I said in the introduction that I marked up this this book with a whole bunch of little sticky notes, which is what I do when I read books for the, the podcast, and I was surprised at how many sticky notes I used in such a short book. It's really it's about 150 pages, but it's uh, just covered with sticky notes, and many of them, I noticed, are on the lower half of the page where you guys have these really interesting footnotes that are marked by asterisks in the text, and you have all sorts of tidbits in there. Sometimes I wish they actually made the main text. But on page 21, this this marker I have is uh, you quote a professor, a law school professor, and his views immediately after September 11th, and they're, I don't know, shall we say a little mushy, um, a little soft on the notion of this being a war that we have to prosecute. And then at the end of the passage, you say, this professor is our current president. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this was a column written by uh, Chicago University of Chicago law uh, instructor, professor, whatever his title was, named Barack Obama, written on September 19th, 2001. September 19th, 2001. And he spoke about 9-11 as, quote-unquote, a tragedy. And he spoke about 9-11 as having grown out of a, quote, climate of poverty, helplessness, and despair, close quote. And he talked about what the response from America should be to what happened on 9-11. And his concern then, as I would say his concern today, is that America would be, um, would be by prosecuting a, a, a war against the terrorists, would be um, would be exacerbating not only the despair, not only the poverty, but also the anger of the Muslim world. That was his concern in uh, 2001. I believe that's still his concern now when you look at the statements he and his administration put out about the war against terrorism. It's a very interesting thing. It was a very, very close tie to what Gene Kirkpatrick once called blaming America first. Of course, we've learned a lot since 9-11. One of the things we have learned is uh, terrorists um, do not come exclusively from uh, the poor uh, communities. They do not come from the ignorant communities and the despairing communities. In fact, most of them are middle class or upper middle class. A lot of doctors in front of their names. A lot of Mercedes in their car garages. You know, uh, this, is, this is not a poor movement. Right. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point about terrorists. And not only are they not poor, but they're, they're also not ignorant. And you talked about the notion of public opinion and how you thought it might falter. And in the book, you quote some of the terrorists themselves, including Osama bin Laden, saying that they themselves follow American opinion and its impact on American policy. So I know there's one quote in there that Americans, they... They, they falter after one defeat and they run away. I think he, he cited Somalia, he cited Lebanon. And so it's clear that our opponents, our enemies, are closely following what's going on in the U.S. and what it means for prosecuting the war on terror. There's no question. And uh, Al Jazeera, of course, does not help. This is the Middle East News Agency, which uh, promotes uh, some of this, uh, a lot of the statements that come out in America and go across, uh, go across the transoms of the Middle East and uh, into the Muslim nation. You're right. Uh, uh, Osama bin Laden said people would rather follow a strong horse than a weak horse. And very big in his um, very big in his history book is the lessons he drew from Beirut in 1983 when we withdrew from Lebanon after we were attacked there, and Somalia in the 90s when we withdrew after we were attacked there. He also at various points has talked about Vietnam, and the point of it is this: he thought 
that America runs when America is hit hard and that we no longer live in a kind of World War II mentality where we will be in things for the long haul, that Americans can't take civilian casualties. What's interesting is I think right after 9-11-2001, most people would have said bin Laden was wrong. We had talk about draining the swamps. We had talk about either you're with us or you're against us. We had very high notions, high and lofty and heady notions, about radically reforming the Middle East and that we were going to be there for a long time and we were going to do a lot. seems to me today's talk is a lot different. Today's thinking is a lot different. And quite possibly, bin Laden may have been right about American public opinion. seems what we do more than anything is inconvenience Americans now, not Muslim terrorists. I think anyone who goes to an airport who listens to this will know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that is a good point. Um, you, you, you talk about Osama bin Laden and how he follows what's going on in America. Do you have any sense, or do you and Bill talk about in the book, what are his sources? I mean, what does he follow? Does he watch Fox News? Does he read the Wall Street Journal? Does he watch CNN, MSNBC? I mean, where, where, where does he get his information from? And is he, He's only told us a couple of times. He's actually told us a couple of times uh, books he recommends, <laughs> books he's read. Right? We know his followers uh, pay attention to Al Jazeera, and we know his followers read what goes across the Internet. But he has uh, recommended books that basically come from the Noam Chomsky, Noam Chomsky School of American History. Noam Chomsky is um, an MIT professor who has a narrative about America, that America has been uh, the bane of the world, that America is responsible for most of the problems in the world. It has not been the solution to it. A series of other less well-known professors who have picked up on this theme, and they have written books along the same lines about how <clears throat> America has impoverished Muslim communities, it uh, is an imperialist power across the world, and uh, bin Laden has cited these books from time to time, and what's interesting is these books are, I don't know, in the hundreds of thousands or millions on Amazon because very few people have read them or bought them, and then he'll mention it, and then you'll see their numbers Decrease, which is to say, you'll see their numbers be, uh, you'll see these books be purchased. Right, their sales increase and yeah. their sale rankings decrease. That's right. You'll see. You'll, now, whether these books are being bought in America or across the world, I cannot tell you. Probably a little of both. Trying to understand uh, what what motivates Bin Laden, but this is the narrative of America that he understands. This is the narrative he knows. It's the narrative of paranoia. It's the narrative of America as an evildoer through history. And it's, the and it's the narrative uh, that America can do no right. The Muslim grievance, the radical Muslim grievance, which is the same as the national Arabist grievance, is that America is the source of most of the world's problems. This is not unusual for failed societies. They usually do not look inward. They look outward for someone else to blame. We, like Israel, have been their blame. Yeah, you, you mentioned Israel, and one point you make in the book that, that I thought was interesting is you say that Obama has traveled all over the world and he's traveled to many of the Muslim countries and gave a famous speech in Egypt, but he did not visit Israel. Now, on the one hand, you could just say, well, it's just one country, he didn't visit it, and there's a lot of countries he didn't visit. But you seem to see special significance in the fact that he skipped Israel. Do you think it was a pointed skip of Israel? What do, what do, you, do, you, make, what do, what do you mean when you're making that point? Yeah. I think when he became president, he decided to make a very clear statement that his presidency would not be the George W. Bush presidency. He would be the un-Bush. Whatever Bush did, he would do the opposite of. 
And we've seen that in many policies and many statements, from foreign to domestic. In his first year in office, he traveled the Middle East, as you point out, and he went to Egypt, he went to Saudi Arabia, he went to Turkey. His first interview was on an Arabic radio station. I think he was making a very clear point that he was going to be a kinder and softer softer kind of president in the Arab and in the Muslim world, and to the Arab and Muslim world. Now, I don't take much out of the fact that he didn't go to Israel in and of itself. What I think is telling is that he didn't go to Israel when he made a point of going to all those other Middle East nations. I think that spoke loudly, and I think that spoke clearly, not only about his intentions and his views, but I think it spoke loudly and clearly to the Arab world as well, that Israel was not going to be, uh, you know, a preferred nation or a preferred nation state to America under President Obama. Lo and behold, we saw that when uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu came to the White House and was basically given second or third class status, third, second or third class treatment, not even a, not even a press meeting, a uh, press briefing with him. So I don't take much from the fact that he didn't go to Israel. <clears throat> what I think is interesting is he didn't go to Israel when he went to the rest of the Middle East and made such a point of such outreach to the Arab nations. That sent a lot of signals. Yeah, in terms of signals, it, it seems to me that, that this is a war that's being fought on multiple fronts. And I think sometimes people don't realize it. There's kind of a feeling that, well, if we haven't been hit in a large way like the World Trade Center, then perhaps uh, the, the war is overblown and maybe we shouldn't be prosecuting it or, or pursuing it. But I think one of the points you make in the book is that this really is a multi-front war and that there's a cultural aspect to it. There's a political aspect to it. There are things like the assault on Fort Hood uh, by uh, by Major, what's his name, Nadal, uh, Nadal Hassan, yeah. who uh, killed a, a dozen American soldiers, and it was not seen as an act of terror, even though he clearly had Islamist influences in terms of what kinds of books he was reading and the, 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 um, the, the clerics he was listening to. So can, can you talk about this? And, th and then another thing I noticed is that you, uh, you quoted Bruce Bauer, who's written a book called um, Surrender, uh, where he's talking about what's going on in Western Europe and uh, increased mm -hmm. Islamicization there. So do you guys... You, I, Take it, you see it as a multi-front war. How do you expect to... It is, a, yeah, no, very very nicely put. Very good question. It is a multi-front war, and most people, I mean, just to give you a sense of it, most people will talk about, you know, the battlefronts of, the, uh, of Afghanistan and Iraq, or that we're engaged in two wars right now in Afghanistan, Iraq, possibly a third with Libya. I have always maintained, as Bill has always maintained, that there is yet another battleground, and that is America. There are minimum of four battlegrounds right now, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and America. Why do I say America? <clears throat> America was the first place that was attacked, and American interests have been attacked by terrorists for, for well over a decade now, two decades. And people tend to forget some of these things. You think about Nadal Hassan for just a moment. This is a terrorist who not only proclaimed his intentions for months before he went on his rampage at Fort Hood, but just think about Fort Hood for a moment. This is a fort in the middle of Texas. It was a medical center in a fort in the middle of Texas. If a medical center in a military fort in the middle of Texas is not safe from terrorism, where is? What is? And to think about what's going on in America right now is to think that we're basically a safe place. But that happened in a military, in a military in installation by a man in the military. 
But that's not what happened. And that's not what happens every year. People tend to forget these statistics because the media doesn't really play them up. But, uh, for instance, let me put it to you this way. Does anyone realize that uh, between, uh, between May and November of last year, 22 homegrown terrorists were arrested in the midst of plotting attacks against America right here in the United States of America? Does anyone realize that the three largest branches of Al-Qaeda International, that is to say Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Qaeda in Africa, and Al-Qaeda Central, are now operationally run by people who were born or naturalized in America? That, to me, is an amazing thing, but it is amazingly true. Al-Qaeda, in many respects, on that score, is almost an American franchise. Wow, that is pretty scary. And I did not realize that, especially the fact about the, the 22 people who are arrested as homegrown potential terrorists. So does that mean that the Obama administration is doing a good job? I mean, they've captured these 22 people before they were able to harm the country. So would you praise them for that effort? Oh, you want to praise the FBI, of course, for doing a good job at law enforcement when they do catch these people. But <clears throat> what you also have to look at are terrorist attempts. Have they grown or have they gone down? What's amazing to me is that 2009, the first year of the Obama administration, was uh, there was a very direct appeal, as we spoke about here, by President Obama to have a different kind of approach in foreign policy, a different kind of approach rhetorically. And not only, not only that, but people will remember he apologized for America on the world stage. He called what we did to, um, to captured, uh, capture terrorists torture. He said he would end it. He said he was going to close Guantanamo Bay, and that was the lead lead reason we had terrorists, terrorist attacks against America. This was all in 2009. By the end of 2009, an interesting statistic came forward. More terrorist attempts against America in the year 2009 than in any other year since September 11, 2001, since 2001. 2009 saw more attempts on America than any year since 2001. Just this year, 2011, Homeland Secretary Janet Napolitano said, Al-Qaeda threats against America are at their highest point since 2001. So it's not that we are arresting them and we should be celebrating that arrest. The question is, are they, are they making attempts at us? Are they planning attempts on us? and how high those numbers are. They're much higher under President Obama than they were under President Bush. Why are they trying to attack us? They're trying to attack us because it has nothing to do with Guantanamo Bay, it has nothing to do with enhanced interrogation, it has nothing to do with our presence in Iraq. None of those things were the case on September 10, 2001. None of those things were the case when the USS Cole was attacked in 2000 or the African embassies in 1998, or the Kobar Towers in 96, or the first attempt on the World Trade Center in 1993. None of those things were the case. The reason they want to attack us is because they hate America. They hate what America stands for. What America stands for is, of course, freedom, of course, it's equality, and, of course, it's in their way. Where they want to go on the, uh, where they want to go on the attack, we're there to thwart them, or have been. That's why they hate us has nothing to do, has nothing to do with Guantanamo Bay, Iraq, and these other nonsensical things that President Obama has said. So why the attacks? Why the attempts? 
precisely because of what you cited Bin Laden said. They go after weak horses, and we're looking to be a weak horse. You know, I wonder if a piece of that is the rhetoric, because you, you mentioned rhetoric uh, a moment ago, and then uh, we also talked in your in your book about um, Janet Napolitano, who was the governor of the state you live in now in, in Arizona, and you said that she goes out of her way not to use the word terrorist, and I believe there was that skit about the attorney general and how he wouldn't use the word Islamic influence when you talked about yep. certain terrorists. Uh, can you talk about the, this rhetorical angle and, and what it means sure. and why they don't want to talk about the, uh, the Islamic influence or use the word terror? Sure. And Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in uh, 2009 said the war against terror is not a phrase we use anymore. Uh, they have an allergy to it. We just had uh, in February two, uh, two servicemen, American servicemen, killed in Germany by a man yelling Allahu Akbar as he killed them. Not a word from the President of the United States on this. Why do they not want to talk about Islamic extremism? Why do they not want to talk about radical Islam? They don't want to do it because they fear their concern is that by talking about Islam, by talking about radical Islam, they are going to engender more hatred of America. It's going to look much more like an us-versus-them kind of war which it actually is, then we are all in this together and Islam is not part of the problem, which we all know it is. This was a decided effort of political correctness. This is the same exact reason that when Nadal Hassan was at Bethesda Naval giving lectures on why he believed it was appropriate to pour oil down the throats of infidels and to slay them, no one wanted to report him because they were afraid their careers would come to an end rather than his. There is a concerted, multicultural, and political correct attitude right now that starts at the top of the administration and moves downward throughout the rest of America that is afraid to talk about radical Islam unless someone be called an Islamophobe or a scaremonger. That's the new ethic. That's the new reality. That's the new politics. Again, I think when radical Muslims look at this, they think us fools. They are doing everything in the world that they possibly can to tell us who they are. This is where Bernard Lewis, who is probably the dean of Arabic and Islamic studies in America, or if not the world, this is where he is so absolutely right when he says, when we talk about radical Islam as the problem, we're only, we're only doing so because we are listening to what people who kill us tell us. They're telling us who they are. And we're deciding right now, as a country, to ignore them. I think we're doing so at our peril. You know, you mentioned this notion of uh, us versus them and the attacks or the assaults on people who make this argument as Islamophobes, and that's why people didn't want to address the uh, idea of Nadal Hussan's uh, danger, how dangerous he was. In fact, I think you have this story in the book, which I had not heard before, that he was shuttled around from place to place because nobody wanted to address the fact that he was so dangerous. They said, well, let's put him in another place. And it's like, it's like a hot potato. And the, the, unfortunately, the citizens and the soldiers at Fort Hood were, were, were caught with, with the potato when it exploded. Yeah, that's right. And if you want to know why they thought this, we can look at um, we can just look at a statement we have in the book probably three times. It's a statement from the Army Chief of Staff, General George Casey, who said this on NBC right after the Fort Hood slaughter. He said, "Quote: Our diversity, not only in our army but in our country, is a strength. And as horrific as this tragedy was, 
If our diversity becomes a casualty, I think that's worse, close quote. That's the ethic that was running through the political leadership of the military at the time, and I guess still is, the idea that diversity in the military is more important than casualties absorbed by the military. The idea that uh, multiculturalism is more important in the military than saving lives or force protection. Of course, it's nonsense. Of course, it, um, it's, it's actually not even military. I mean, most people who I know who have been in the military tell me <laughs> it's called the uniform services for a reason, and that's to crush diversity within itself. We get similar haircuts, we wear uniforms, we have a chain of command, we have orders. Diversity is about the last thing that is esteemed in the military or should be. But when it came to uh, a radical Islamist within our ranks, that was the thinking. Because the idea was, we don't want to make waves with the Muslim population, we don't want to look like we're discriminating. Well, of course, it's all nonsense, but more than nonsense, it proved to be lethal. Now, what about you and, and your co-author, uh, Bill Bennett? Are you guys worried about this accusation of Islamophobia, of uh, being on the side of the us versus them and, and taking, making this into some kind of polarized Manichaean struggle? Is, is that your concern, and do you think you'll get tagged with that accusation as a result of having written this book? No. I mean, we might get tagged with that accusation, but it's never been a concern of ours. I mean, I don't think anyone can get anything done in this country unless they're willing to take certain risks. And, of course, tens of thousands of Americans take much harder, much stronger, much more difficult risks than we do when they uh, merely volunteer to fight this war for us and on our behalf. No, our concerns are third or fourth rate about ourselves. People want to call us names. That's fine. But one thing we did do in the book... One thing we did do in the book, because we think language matters, is I think you'll find we wrote it very carefully. It took us a while to write it, and as you point out, it's not a, it's not a long book. Uh, I, I think we got the language just right, because I think the language is important. And we do not slander uh, the entire Islamic religion. We do not criticize all of Islam. We talk about particular strains, strains within it and particular notions and doctrines within it. And we talk about certain Muslim heroes. Uh, we do all of this, so I think that um, I think that anyone who gives the book a fair read will find that not only not only are we not Islamophobes, but this is a good way about uh, a good way to talk about the war against terrorism, the war against radical Islam. As far as the name calling goes, you know, any Peter King gets it for holding hearings on uh, radicalization in America, and uh, a lot of people get it for uh, protesting mosques at Ground Zero. Uh, but, you know, protest they should, and uh, hearings Peter King should have. And books like this, well, you know, I, we just hope that, um, that enough people read it to realize how important this struggle is. As for the name-calling, we'll take it. You know, you mentioned this notion of the protests, and I, you're talking about the World Trade Center and, and the, the mosque nearby, and you mentioned uh, Pope John Paul II. I thought that was an interesting analogy. I'll, I'll let you tell it, but um, it, it's not just about whether someone has the right to build something somewhere, but do you want to take sensitivities into account and and people's feelings and, and people's concerns when, when making decisions like that? Just because you have the right to do something doesn't necessarily mean you should do that thing. Right. There was this debate over uh, building a mosque at Ground Zero, near Ground Zero, New York. I say at or near because that debate is itself part of Part of the argument, uh, the truth is people were running and screaming for their lives on 9-11 right past where they want to build this mosque. The truth is that one of the landing gears 
when one of the airplanes used to attack the World Trade Center landed right where they want to build this mosque. So I'm happy to call it Mosque Ground Zero. Um, I'm not happy to call it that. I'm, I'm happy that that's the language we use. Mosque Ground Zero. It's going to be very hard as a matter of the First Amendment to say that people don't have a right to build a religious institution almost anywhere they want in America. But it's not about the First Amendment that we're arguing. It's about, it's about how far we've come as a country since 2001 and how insensitive it is by the Muslim community of New York that wants to build this mosque there. It is a thumb in our eye and it is a punch in the face. And, uh, yes, this uh, reminded us very much of what happened when um, a bunch, a group of Carmelite nuns wanted to build a convent, a convent near Auschwitz. And uh, the Pope said, look, we can probably build convents anywhere we want in the world, and uh, we have done so, and we'll build more. But this is insensitive, and we don't need to do it there. We don't need to do it there. We have built hundreds and hundreds of mosques in America since 2001. There are probably almost, I don't know, 5,000 mosques in America. This is not a country, this is not a country that is bigoted. This is not a country that is uh, targeting Muslim Americans in America. And we can talk about those statistics too, if you like. That has all been trumped up. What has happened, however, is that those who say that's insensitive, are being called Islamophobes, are being called uh, insensitive themselves. And that's wrong. The people who should take the blame for the argument and the controversy over the Ground Zero Mosque in New York are the Muslims who wanted to build it. doesn't need to be right there. You know, it's, it's interesting when, when you talk about uh, the Muslim world, which is obviously a, a very diverse world, and there's concerns these days about Islamophobia, uh, Islamophobia on one hand. On the other hand, uh, Islamists who are, uh, who are trying to uh, destroy the Western way of life. But at the same time, there's a new spring emerging in the Arab world and in the Muslim world, and there are a lot of people who are rising up within Arab countries and in Muslim countries who are saying enough to the di dictatorship, enough to the closed-mindedness, we want freedom, we want democracy, we want to get on Twitter without anybody censoring us on, on Twitter. And you have this one frightening quote, I thought, where uh, that you talk about the Iranian Green Revolution in 2009, where they were protesting in the streets and they're saying, we want freedom in Iran, and the United States was quite silent on it, and you quote somebody who's saying, where is Obama? And we're here for freedom, and where is President Obama? Why isn't he backing us up? Do you, do you want to talk about what's going on right now in the Arab world and in the Muslim world in terms of the, this, this quest for freedom? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think this was probably the biggest blunder of the Obama administration, bigger than anything else we've talked about. In two, uh, let's, let's start with one principle that I think uh, Iran is probably the number one threat to America, the number one threat to the West, the number one threat to Israel. It has been at war with us for over 30 years now. It has killed dozens of Americans through acts of terrorism, through Hezbollah and other terrorist agencies throughout the world, in the Middle East to South America. And now they are trying to become a nuclear country, a nuclear weaponized country. And they don't, they, the leadership of Iran does not hide its intentions. It speaks about us being a great Satan. It speaks about envisioning a world without America and a world without Israel. 
So what to do about Iran? Well, very few people want to open up yet another battlefield, yet another war front in the country of Iran. And, of course, those war games, no one knows how that something like that would go. So the only hope that a lot of us have had for Iran is that the country would change internally, that an internal revolution would take place, much like revolutions did through Eastern Europe in the uh, late 1980s and uh, they, when they cr- cr- when when the communist countries crumbled uh, unto their own people. A lot of us have had hopes for that in Iran. And in 2009, we saw that organic revolution come from within, within the country of Iran. And it seemed to be a peaceful people. It seemed to be a people that wanted to align and ally with America. And it seemed like they had one brief shining moment where they might actually topple their regime. And the most famous statement the president could give those brave protesters who were being crushed in the streets was, the United States will not meddle. That was his quote, we will not meddle. Which, of course, he was meddling. Whenever you say something like that, you're obviously taking sides. You're taking sides with the people with the guns and the batons. And that revolution, that revolutionary moment was crushed. And I don't know if we'll see it again. I don't know if we'll see it again. It's going to be very hard. And, of course, it's going to be even harder because the people there will not think that America will be on their side. We, uh, we lost a lot of trust there. We lost a lot of ground. And we may gain a nuclear country in the Middle East as a result of it. The uh, quote-unquote spring that's going on in the rest of the Arab world that we see right now, I'm, I'm much less optimistic about. The Iranian protesters, the Iranian dissidents, made their intentions about America very clear about aligning with the West. I don't think we're seeing that right now in Egypt with the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, which may very well fill the vacuum of Mubarak. I don't think we're seeing it um, in a lot of these places where we have high hopes. We should have high hopes, but we have not done much to foster and engender a pro-Western democratic uh, minority in these countries. So we're just going to have to see. Yates said that sometimes the beggar and the man on the horse just change positions, and the lash stays the same. That's what I fear we might be seeing right now. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. And, uh, you know, we have one time, we have time for one final question here. I appreciate all the time you've given me. And we have a signature question here at New Books and Public Policy. Every time we have an author on, we ask them the following question. If you were czar for a day, what policies would you proceed with or would you promulgate as a result of what you've learned from this book? And it is interesting that this is the first time that we actually get to ask the question to someone who was co-author with an actual czar, Bill Bennett, who was the, uh, the drug czar. So uh, uh, Bill Bennett and you get to be czars again, I guess, in Bennett's case, and for the first time in your case. What policies would you pursue as a result? Uh, first, education, bully pulpit. Call things by their proper name. Talk about who the enemy is in actual terms of who the enemy is. Let's stop with the political correctness. Let's identify who the enemy is, and let's let them know we know who they are. One, that's a matter of rhetoric. Two, I think we need to have a wholesale reinvestigation of what is being taught in our classrooms. Uh, American children in uh, elementary and secondary schools have no understanding of the American cause because they have no understanding of American history. So our worst subject, and um, they have also bought in, as most of the textbooks have, as most of the education schools that provide history teachers have. They have bought in to the notion that America is the evil in the world, not the solution to it. 
It's a blame America first idea. So if we're going to raise up a generation of fighters and politicians and thinkers who are going to be able to, um, you know, keep America strong and defend her, I think they have to know that America is not the cause of bad in the world. And they have to know all the good things we have done and that we do stand for something better than abuse of uh, minorities, abuse of women, abuse of Jews, abuse of Christians in Muslim lands. That's not what we're about. That's what the enemy is about. But we're on equal footing right now in the education system. So we have to have a wholesale discussion about what is being taught in our nation's schools and what kind of textbooks are being used. Those are long-term effort. That's a long-term effort. Third is I think we need to reinvigorate the CIA and our intelligence services. We've made uh, cutbacks there. We have uh, decided not to engage in covert operations the way we should be. We have no idea who to call when, uh, when a revolution takes place in a place like Libya or Egypt because we have not been engendering people on our side there. That needs to change. We need to be nurturing pro-Western, pro-American allies in these, uh, in these uh, tyrannies so that when the revolutions occur, we can be there to help them. And uh, third, and fourth, and finally, we need a vigorous missile defense system. America is uh, vulnerable right now to Iran, North Korea, any group of terrorists that wants to come up close to our shores and launch a missile attack on us. And we can do that in about three years if we have the, um, if we have the resolve to do it. You know, it's interesting that you talk about uh, in your question about what policies you, w- you would pursue in a book that some people might say, oh, this is belligerent or you're, you're sort of what you want the conservative side of the aisle. But your, all, your answers, your public policy solutions are education, reinvestigating what we teach in the classrooms, um, nurturing people who like us in different countries, and a missile defense, meaning uh, a defensive operation. So it's, it's, it's certainly not at all any kind of a hostile platform that, that you would pursue, and I, I find that pretty interesting. And it might be contrary to what people who read or don't read the book but just read the, the opening page might think about you. So I think it, it demands further exploration, and I think people who read this book will see that it's not an easily stereotyped book. Right. Thank you for noticing that. This is a book about America. It's not a book about the rest of the world at large, and uh, because it's America that needs to get itself right right now. That's our view. Well, Seth Liebson, thank you for joining us. The book, again, do you want to say it, or should I? It's the fight of our lives, knowing the enemy, speaking the truth, and choosing to win the war against radical Islam. Seth Liebson, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to an interview with Seth Liebson the co-author with William J. Bennett of The Fight of Our Lives, Knowing the Enemy, Speaking the Truth, and Choosing to Win the War Against Radical Islam. The book is published by Thomas Nelson Press. It, as I said, and we said in the podcast, it is a short book, but very readable, very interesting, and might surprise you, especially those who come to the book with preconceived notions about the author or this notion of a war on terror. So I urge you to go out and read the book, enjoy it, and tune in next time for new books and public policy. I'm Chevy Troyer, your host. Keep reading. Thank you very much.